G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. But our special guest today was considered to be one of the fastest bowlers in international cricket. That's got the attention of every cricket tragic who's listening in and you might want to just brush up on your history. These days, our special guest lives in Australia and he is a Christian evangelist. Henry Olonga played test and one-day cricket for Zimbabwe, making his test debut in 1995 and was a regular on the Zimbabwe team until 2003. And at that time, he was at the centre of one of the biggest international controversies of world cricket. Henry Olonga's international career came to an end in 2003 after he and teammate Andy Fowler, Flower, wore black armbands during an international cricket match in the 2003 Cricket World Cup. They were wearing the black armbands to mourn the death of democracy in Zimbabwe. And you might recall that Zimbabwe was under the heel of dictator Robert Mugabe. Death threats forced Henry Olonga to live in exile in England. And these days, home for Henry Olonga is in Adelaide. Henry Alonga, a special welcome back to 2020. Well, thank you for having me back. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. And You know, we've only just talked on one dimension, but let's deal with that. Uh, let's talk about your cricket history, your cricket career. Uh, you made your test debut back in January 1995. Uh, take us back to those early days, Henry. Well, my career really started at school. Um when at the age of about eight, a man called Bob Blair came to my school. Bob Blair was a former Kiwi. He'd played for New Zealand in, I think, the 50s and 60s um, and had since retired by this stage. Uh, he was about in his 50s, I guess. And uh, he came to my school. I went to a little junior school called Rhodes Estate Preparatory School, which was about 30 kilometers from the big city uh, in the province of Matabililand. And uh, it was while we were there during this coaching session that he held at my school that I, I developed a love for the game. So he basically showed, showed us how to hold a ball, how to bowl it, you know, different types of bowling, spin and uh, swing seam, etc. And also showed us how, how to hold a bat. And I guess that was the, the introduction to cricket that I, 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 I enjoyed. And from then on, I started representing my school in the Colts, first of all, and then Worked my way up to the first 11 at the age of about 12. Played for my province or state as it's called here in Australia. Uh, and then uh, eventually, of course, made my way into the Zimbabwe schools team at the age of 17 and 18. And so throughout my schooling, there was this uh, raw talent, this promise, if you will, that selectors recognized and they kept picking me. I was a fast bowler um, who had a, you know, I was I was a lot quicker than my my other peers, uh, even in my childhood. And so they, they saw me as someone that they could promote uh, quite quickly. 
Uh, now, you, you were very kind in mentioning that I was, a, I was a, one of the fastest bowlers in international cricket, which may kind of have been true. I mean, I wasn't as fast as, say, Brett Lee or Shoabakhtar, but I was, I, was, I was up there. I could bowl at 145-plus on a good day. What you failed to mention was that I was one of the wildest and uh, most inaccurate bowlers <laughs> that has ever played the game, and uh, it came back to haunt me once or twice. But uh, long story short, my, my asset was speed. I could bowl very fast, and as a result of that, I was a wicket-taker, a genuine wicket-taker. Uh, I was called a, what, what people would call a shock bowler in, in cricketing terms, in that I would bowl short spells, but try to impact as much damage as I could. And uh, that led to me playing international cricket for about eight seasons. I made my debut in 95 against Pakistan, at least in test cricket anyway. Um, and this was uh, in 95, as I said, uh, early, early part of the year. They'd just done a tour of South Africa. They came through to Zimbabwe to play a one-off test. They, I was selected for that. And a number of things happened. Of course, I was the first black player to play for Zimbabwe. Uh, it had been an all-white team until my debut. I was the youngest at the time as well. Uh, and, and of course, the, the most controversial thing about that test is not only did we win it, but I also got called for throwing in that test, which, had, uh, which was something that hadn't happened for quite a while, 32 years, I think, to be exact. And so it was, it was bittersweet for me. We'll talk about a number of elements of things you have just mentioned, but there's an, there's an Aussie connection that I know so many listeners will really appreciate when you say you were a fast bowler. Uh, the shock bowler. I mean, you were bowling fast, but not always as accurate as you would have liked to have been. But there was a good little relationship that you had uh, with our own uh, superhero of Test cricket, Dennis Lilly, who helped you rebuild your action at one point. Well, that's right. So um, after getting called for throwing, I was actually in a bit of. Uh, I was in two minds as to what to do because, of course, um, I'd. In, in a sense, embarrassed myself and my country on this massive sporting arena. And um, I, I was lucky that not only the Zimbabwe Cricket Union, as it was called back then, it's now called Zimbabwe Cricket, but also the ICC, the International Cricket Council, and various bodies around the world wanted to get me back on track. And so I'm very grateful to them and, and thankful, of course. Um, but the first thing that happened is I got sent off in 95, the same year of being called for throwing and the same year that I made my debut. I was sent off to the Madras Rubber Factory Pace Foundation, I believe it was called, the MRF Pace Foundation in India, in Madras. It's now called Chennai, of course. But uh, that was special because not only did I work with Joel Garner, the, the great, tall, fast West Indian bowler uh, of the 80s, but I also played, uh, sorry, worked with Dennis Lilly, who came across for about a week or so. And so it was the first time I was in a professional environment working with professional coaches. We had video cameras, camcorders to record our actions, to replay them, to review them and look at the biomechanics of building and what can be improved, what can be fixed. Um, and then the next year, 96, I was um, sent to the academy that was here in Australia. Um, it was in Adelaide. It was run by um, the late Rod Marsh and uh, a few other people. Uh, there was a guy called Richard Doan, who was a, a wonderful biomechanics specialist. There was another gentleman called Wayne Phillips, who played for Australia as a wicketkeeper, batsman. Um, and there was some of interest on that trip. There were some promising players who ended up playing for Australia uh, who were at the academy. One was a little-known fast bowler called Brett Lee, and the other was a guy called Brad Williams, I think. And uh, I was there for about three or four weeks. 
worked with Dennis Lilly, of course, on a short, short stint. Um, and then the year after I went to South Africa and worked for six months at the academy there. So three years in a row, I worked at various academies and twice with Dennis Lilly and in South Africa with a man called Clive Rice. Uh, any cricket lovers would remember him. And uh, long story short, within that three-year period, I was able to fix my action, become ratified as legal, and then played for another uh, five or so seasons after that. Uh, I think 98 through to about 2000, 2001 were my best years. I played 30 test matches. I took uh, 58 wickets. I played 51 days and took uh, 50. No, I, I took 68 test wickets and 58 one-day wickets, I believe. So there was no T20 back then. So uh, that's the sum total of my cricket career. It was very uh, <laughs> modest. And you know what? That's that's a cricket career in a nutshell. Uh, just to pick up on something which is very significant, because when you were just a, a boy and into your teenage years and that raw talent was there and you were being recognised, uh, you might have had the thought that uh, you would never play international cricket because at the time in Zimbabwe, as you said, uh, all of the players were white and you were the first black cricketer and the youngest person to play for Zimbabwe. That must have been almost like a dream come true for you and for your family and for your whole community. Well, well, yes, in a sense. I mean, when I grew up playing cricket, I was playing in integrated schools. So it wasn't as big a deal for me as it may have been, I guess, for the establishment who wanted cricket to become uh, a more ubiquitous sport. So, you know, I played with and against not only white players, but people we would call colored players in Zimbabwe. I think in the West, it's kind of frowned upon to use the word colored, but what we mean by that is mixed race. Um, and, and of course, we had a lot of Asian players as well. So for me, playing cricket uh, didn't seem to be just a white man's sport when I was playing. At the top level, yes. But throughout my schooling and even into interprovin- provincial cricket, it was, it was a very integrated uh, sport, and it was becoming so. Now, the reason it was uh, elite at the top level was because Zimbabwe only attained independence in 1980. Prior to that, it was a nation called Rhodesia, and that was based on a system, a political system of segregation. So a lot of black people uh, couldn't vote uh, for the the candidate of their choice. Um, and, and there were all sorts of laws that made it very difficult for black politicians to excel in Rhodesia. So come um, independence, Robert Mugabe, of course, became the leader of the country. Um, but prior to independence, um, cricket, uh, rugby, tennis uh, were elite sports that black people just simply didn't have access to. They didn't live in the right areas. They didn't belong to clubs. They didn't have memberships. Uh, we didn't have those sports in our own communities because they're very expensive to run. Um, and so with the uh, with independence coming, the floodgates were opened for people like myself to work our way up through the system. So I was at the front of the wave of young players who had started to play those games um, in the early 80s. Uh, independence was 1980, uh, like I said. And so I just I was, I was lucky to be at the front of it. If, eventually, after making my debut, uh, many other black players made their way through. Some of them are well-known in the world of cricket. For example, Pomi Mbangwa, who's a very good commentator who commentates around the world. Um, but it, it, was, it was a big deal for our community, no doubt. It was something that people had been crying out for because the nation at the time, I think, had a ratio of something like, I, I think the population 
was 300,000 white people versus something like 12 million black people. And of course, people were saying, how, how can this be right? We've got to have representation at the highest level. So politically, socially, um, it, it was important when I made my debut. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, 1-800-316-316, if you'd like to join in our conversation, our special guest is Henry Olonga. We've been hearing about his cricket career, and there's a number of different dimensions to Henry as we get into our conversation a little further. Henry, before we go much further, I do want to ask you about your faith, about what happened in early years how you became Christian and uh, then moved into, really, uh, what we could all say is uh, this sort of role as an evangelist. I wonder if you've got a, 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 some insights here into your early years. Well, sure. Um, both of the schools I attended uh, had uh, a Christian uh, ethos, if you will. We had chapel services every Sunday. They were compulsory. We got dressed up. By the way, I went to boarding schools. I must say that. That's a very important point. I lived at school uh, for nine months of every year. And because we were on campus, um, we, we, we attended church. You had to dress up in your best dress uh, and put your tie on, your blazer, all of that stuff. And we'd go to church and we'd hear uh, not only messages, but of course, we'd sing hymns uh, and choruses once in a while. So it was a very Anglican um, style of service in both schools, junior school and high school. Incidentally, I went to reps in junior school in a school called Plumtree in high school. Um, and they were both very good government or state schools um, that had amazing tradition. And we also produced incredible people who ended up being captains of industry, sports people, etc. So there's a great heritage from both of those schools. And most importantly, there was a great Christian heritage. So we had a lot of people come and speak at the schools over the years, um, not only uh, the more famous bodies like Scripture Union and Youth for Christ. Um, but we also had uh, the Gideons come around and they would not only share about Jesus, uh, but they'd also hand out Bibles. And I think on just about every occasion, I collected a Bible, a free Bible, because they'd hand out these free Bibles, you see. And in Africa, if someone hands you something for free, you take it. And so I took lots of Bibles. I collected a whole host of them. And I thought the more Bibles you have, the better your chances of getting into heaven. Um, but of course, with time, I started to pay a bit more attention in the sermons. Because of course, to start off with, when you're like eight or nine, it's all a, it's all, a lot of it is over your head. But I guess when you reach the age of accountability, whatever that is, and some people would say it's 13, 14, when you start to understand right from wrong on a deeper level and you start to ask the big questions of life, um, such as where did we come from, why am I here, where do I go and we die, you start to reflect on uh, how your behavior may have an impact on that. And if there is a God, what does that mean? How do I live? And if there isn't a God, what does that mean? And so, of course, the big worldview questions came into sharp focus around about the age of 15, 16, because not only was I moving on from science as a, a general sort of umbrella topic in class, I was now moving into the very specifics. I was moving into biology. And of course, there we try to uh, figure out the big questions of how did life begin? And so for me, there was this, uh, this, this confusion that reigned in my heart because on Sunday, I would be hearing that we are here as a result of a creator God who made everything 
and put man, if you will, at the top of the uh, food chain. Uh, we, we were given authority. We were made in God's image. We were to run earth, etc. And if anyone follows the story, of course, there was the fall. Uh, and, and so I kind of understood the general story of the Bible. I understood that man was separated from God because of sin. I also understood that Jesus came to earth to be the remedy for this problem of our separation and also the impact of our sin, etc. And But the problem was, of course, if I believed that story, it said a lot of positive things about humanity. We're here by design. We're here because we've come from the mind of an infinitely knowledgeable God. And not only is he infinitely knowledgeable, but he's also loving. And he rescues us from from the wages of sin, which is death. That was all amazing. But of course, on Monday, I would go to biology class and I'd hear the complete opposite. You know, I'd be told, well, there's no God. God is not necessary. We don't need a deity to explain our origins. All we need is lots of time, a big explosion, and lots of errors in our genetics. And here we are. And to me, I, I, look, I had to pass my exams. So I had to understand and answer the questions correctly. But I also had this cognitive dissonance that was going on in my heart. I'm thinking, who's telling me the truth? Is it my preacher on Sunday or is it my teacher on Monday? And so, of course, it led to all sorts of confusions. I then decided I didn't want to go along the Christian route. I would go into something that was kind of in the middle. So I went for yoga. I bought a book called Teach Yourself Yoga. And after the, uh, you had to do a number of exercises. And after the last exercise, which was Imagine that you're sitting in an apple and have become an apple. I thought, I don't think yoga is the answer for me with all the transcendental meditation stuff that goes with it. Anyway, I then went on a Christian youth camp, encouraged by a couple of my friends who'd been on these camps and told me they were amazing. And so uh, I asked my dad to pay for the fee, which was 250 bucks. We went off, uh, had a fantastic time. There was a lot of fun and games, a lot of sport, which was right up my alley. And then eventually, um, on the penultimate night of the camp, the gentleman who was running the camp got up and preached uh, the common gospel message. He preached from the book of Romans, uh, Romans 3.23, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then he read from Romans 10, which says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so he encouraged any of us who weren't sure about where we would go when we died, to say a little prayer, which I did, uh, inviting the God of creation into my heart and uh, asking God to forgive me of my sins and grant me eternal life. And so I did that at the age of 16. It was very, I don't know, it was very, uh, uh, myth it, it, there was no emotion surrounding my decision. It was very much a cerebral decision. I, I, I didn't have any, uh, I didn't hear any, trumpets blowing from heaven i you know there was no weird stuff going on it was just a, a decision to believe that god was real that indeed jesus was real had lived the sinless life and had died on the cross for me for the forgiveness of my sins and that if i trusted him that my sins would be forgiven so i did that and uh that was almost uh, oh, crumbs 30 years ago i think yeah wow Henry, when did you realize that when you were sharing your own testimony uh, that you were able to understand you know, some of that reasoning that takes you from Genesis and right through to that book of Romans and those meaningful things that we can glean there that uh, help us to form a gospel message? When did you realize that you were developing this gift as an evangelist? 
So I'll say this. I, I got taken under the wing of a, an American Southern Baptist evangelist who came to Zimbabwe. His name was Fred Sorrells. He'd been in Zimbabwe a couple of years by the time I moved to the capital city. So for my cricket career, I moved from the little city of Bulawayo to Harare, the capital city. And while I was there, I attended a certain church. And in fact, I'm getting my story mixed up. Prior to joining that particular church, I was invited to uh, help with a baseball camp. This man, Fred, used to run baseball camps, and he used to use the gospel, uh, or at least used to use baseball as a vehicle to share the gospel. And uh, I bumped into him there because he'd heard I was a believer. I have no idea how. I can't remember. Uh, but word had gotten around. I'd probably given a few radio interviews myself. Uh, and uh, it was there that I just connected with him, and he took me under his wing, and he mentored me for about three or four years. And even when I was an, an international cricketer, he would give me Bible tracks to take with me to Sri Lanka, India, um, or, or Pakistan. Um, because back in the day, Bangladesh even, back in the day, there was a big focus. I don't know if you remember, Neil. There was a big focus on the 1040 window, was. Uh, which was this, uh, there still is nowadays, of course, um, this, this huge tract of land in Asia where billions of people live and haven't heard the gospel. And so I would go off there and, and not only share in churches, but I'd write, sometimes I'd write ahead. I'd email ahead to churches um, and tell them I'm, I'm on tour, I'm coming, I'd love to fellowship with people, I'd love to share my testimony, which wasn't much of a testimony back then. It was just, hey, I just, I, I've heard the gospel and this is it, and I encourage you to give your life to Jesus. That was kind of it. Of course, a lot of interesting things have happened since, so my story is much more interesting to people, I'm sure. But um, and that was the foundation I was given. And of course, um, once I finished my cricket career, I was living in England for a number of years. I lived there for 12 years. And in the first sort of three or four years, I found myself very limited in what I could do because of my visa. But I bumped into a couple of people in the world of Christendom, and um, I was invited to, give a sh uh, to sing and share at what is called a harvest dinner. It's a very big thing that happens in the UK at the, end, at the, 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 the harvest time of the year, where all, all the farmers, people in the farming community get together, they have a big meal to give thanks to God for the, for, for the harvest. And so I shared at that, and a man was, who was there called Victor Jack had many contacts. Uh, he himself had been an evangelist, and he, he started putting me around the place. And then I ended up working with a man called Roger Carswell. And Roger Carswell was an evangelist who traveled around the UK and did um, evenings of evangelism in which he would interview someone, very much like you're interviewing me. And we would do it in a lot of churches. Once in a while, we do it in a school, universities, etc. And that's how I got my start. Before we talk about your singing career, Henry, let's talk about that huge controversy and how much courage it might have taken for you at the time to wear black armbands at the World Cup and around this issue of... Uh, the death of democracy in Zimbabwe. Uh, briefly take us back into that time, because that was pretty hairy. Well, I, I think your, your intro kind of covered most of the points. Um, just a couple of insights. Uh, I was informed by my Christian faith to do the process, the, 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 um, the, to take that stance. It, it wasn't just my Christian faith. It was my political awakening to do the protest. It was... Uh, also, my social, my sense of social justice. But ultimately, I was informed when I was reading the Bible one day and read the book of uh, 
Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17, which says, uh, contend for the widow and the orphan, rebuke the oppressor. And I was actually sharing recently at a church about how uh, replete through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament is God's heart for those that are vulnerable in society. Um, and, and oftentimes when, when kings, for example, abused their positions of power, God would send someone, oftentimes a prophet, to pull them back into line. Uh, for example, the, uh, the Bible talks about David and how a lot of people know that he abused his power by taking another man's wife and putting him in the front of the battle so he would die. And so long story short, God sends Nathan to rebuke him. Um, and so I've, I'm not saying that God spoke to me with a loud booming voice from heaven. I just sensed that, that we needed to challenge what was going on in Zimbabwe. And there were a lot of things. There was human rights abuses that had occurred historically. There were farm invasions, which many people may have heard of. Uh, and, and of course, there were uh, unfair practices against people who were in the opposition in politics in Zimbabwe. So those were just a number of the things that led me to a place where I felt someone's got to speak out, someone's got to say something, someone's got to do something to show the world that we don't agree with what's going on here. And we made an appeal to the powers that be also to stop those abuses. Well, a plea against human rights abuse in Zimbabwe. And uh, look, I... I don't have an update on what's happening in Zimbabwe today, but in Zimbabwe, no doubt you've you've got family, you've got connections still to your homeland. Uh, these days, are you a hero in Zimbabwe or are you a pariah? I mean, you had to leave the country. Uh, where do you where do you think uh, people in Zimbabwe uh, see you in their history? Well, I, I I'm not sure, Neil. I'm not sure. I I think um, attitudes have softened over the years, because, of course, Robert Mugabe's gone now. He's, he, he died in 2019, and he was deposed uh, from power in 2017. Um, they, were, they were celebrating on the streets when um, he was deposed. But when I did my protest, there was a lot of opposition internally in Zimbabwe. I was vilified by my countrymen. Um, it wasn't unanimous. There were people, of course, who felt that what I did was, uh, what myself and Andy did, were, was the right thing and that uh, we were, in effect, acting on conscience and uh, on principle, and we uh, had some admiration from some corners in Zimbabwe. But I think today, uh, let's remember, this is 20 years ago, I think today attitudes somewhat have softened, except for on Twitter, where um, I get uh, into conversations with the odd troll that make me realize that some people still absolutely despise me. So I don't know how to answer that question. It's safe to say that uh, I think generally attitudes may have softened. Well, we're taking calls 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from our favorite truckie, Pinky. Pinky, welcome along. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, Pinky. Where are you? Off uh, driving around the countryside today or what? No, actually, I'm at home today. <laughs> okay. Well, what are your thoughts for our conversation? Disappointment. Um, Henry, I, I do remember um, uh, your black armband, and I do remember your tucking, because my dad was a, a, a great follower of uh, cricket, and uh, even though it right. bored me to tears, I, I used to watch it. <laughs> okay. Because your dad had it on the TV, uh, you were watching. But yes, and, you know, lots of listeners will remember that uh, really significant time uh, and the challenges that were going on in Zimbabwe. Uh, your thoughts for Pinky uh, Henry? Well, the first thing is I want to know, how does a trucker 
end up with a name like Pinky. It just doesn't <laughs> seem to, to work. <laughs> Pinky, a very quick response from you. Yeah, quick response. That was the colour of what my truck was actually salmon, but they reckon it's pink. But you know what my name, my actual real name is Mark Taylor. There you go. Wow. Another, okay. another, uh, I, played a, I think I played against him. Yes. <laughs> We've yes. got cricket, cricket legend names left, right and centre here. <laughs> yeah. Hey. I've got lots of, lots of good, good comments and lots of bad comments when he played bad and, and played good. It, was it helpful, though, if you're, you know, if you're booking a table at a restaurant, uh, if they thought Mark <laughs> Taylor was coming in advance? So, <laughs> hey, Pinky, thank you so much for your call. And our talk back line is open on 1-800-316-316. I want to take some time to talk about your singing career, Henry, because you made your singing debut uh, back in 2016, uh, when you sung Nessun Dorma at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Now, we'll, we'll go on to talk about the voice, but um, give us some insights here into making your singing debut in Sydney. Well, there was a man called Basil Sellers who I think would um, uh, suggest that I'd made my singing debut a lot earlier than that because he had his 70th um, birthday party here in Adelaide in 2006, maybe. Um, and he flew me over all the way from the UK to come and sing Nessun Dorma at his, at his 70th at the Hilton, I think it was. Uh, but long story short, I've been singing for a long time. I was singing from a young age. Uh, I made my debut on, in, in any musical as a girl in a, in a musical called Oklahoma. Uh, and uh, that was because in a boys-only boarding school, they had to find the girls from somewhere. <laughs> and I had a high-pitched voice, and so I got a part. And I was called the ugliest girl they'd ever had in any play. <laughs> in any case, in any case, I, I loved my singing. And I ended up becoming a soloist at the age of 14. I sung Memory at a concert called Music of Many Moods in the Big City. And I got a, a wonderful response from the audience and, and thought, oh, gosh, you know, I'd love to carry on doing this. A teacher called Felix Westwood took me under her wing and started giving me lead roles in plays. And eventually uh, I became a soloist, so much to the point that I almost, instead of going into cricket, went into singing because I was offered a scholarship at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Uh, in any case, I ended up playing cricket, of course, put singing on the back burner for a while. And then when I retired and I was effectively unemployed in England, um, I was uh, asked to sing here and there, and it just grew from there. And I started um, singing Nessun Dorma as a, as a party trick, uh, because not a lot of people expect someone of my heritage to sing Nessun Dorma. First of all, I don't understand Italian. And um, secondly, I'm probably the wrong color to be singing operatic music. But um, in any case, it opened many doors. And Ultimately, I sung at a concert here in Adelaide around about 2018, and someone videoed it, put it online, and a scout from The Voice saw it and thought, oh, that, that would be fun to have him on the show, because I've got a bit of a story, of course. So I was emailed, uh, and there was a bit of back and forth, and eventually I was convinced to audition, which I did. I got through the two or three rounds you need to get through to get onto the blind audition stage, which I did, and I ended up getting... Uh, three chair turns uh, when I sung This is the Moment from Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, I will say this. The one Christian I would have gone with, Guy Sebastian, 
his chair did not turn and I would have gone with him. But, so, you know, that's what happened. I ended up going with Kelly Rowland and I got through to the uh, third round, I believe. So I got, uh, so there's the, uh, the blind audition, then there was the knockout and then there was the battle and I was eliminated at the battle. Uh, Kelly Rowland chose a rapper over me. So uh, I obviously didn't, I don't sing music that's contemporary enough in her opinion. So I went home. And uh, ever since then, of course, I've been singing uh, live in concerts. I've done a couple of fringe shows. I've done my own show called In the Covers. Um, and um, hopefully onwards and upwards. Things were going well until COVID. But uh, I'm getting back on the road again. So there was three chair turns on The Voice. Uh, Delta Goodrum, uh, Boy George and Kelly Rowland. You went with Kelly That's Rowland. Right. Uh, she had you eliminated, but... Uh, was there a little bit of controversy here in the sense of, or did you sort of drop the ball, to use a, a cricketing expression here, uh, forgetting the lyrics of Elton John's Can You Feel the Love? Is that what happened? Yeah, that was in the knockout. So that was the oh. second round. Um, and so it, it, she, you could argue that she probably had no choice but to send me home. I'm not sure. Um, but having said that, I thought I kind of came back okay. Um, it was a bad week. There was a lot happening. And I, I sort of talked about this uh, with the Channel 9 uh, website when they interviewed me. But my father-in-law had died. I had a terrible cold at the time. And it was just a terrible time. So uh, I got through it. And I think on balance, uh, when it came to the battle, which was between myself and a rapper called Denzel, I think I would always back myself and say, well, I think on the night I came back well and i performed well enough but kelly was not convinced of course she sent me packing and so i went home tail between my legs <laughs> hey henry do you sing any christian songs so we were talking a little earlier yeah. you know you're available to actually come and be an evangelist uh, to speak at various events uh, churches conferences uh, there could be opportunities opening uh, even as we just talk uh, about these things today but do you sing any christian songs Oh, absolutely. So growing up in the Anglican Church, I'm going to sing a lot of the traditional stuff, like the Lord's Prayer. Uh, um, in fact, recently, there was a, a very famous cricketer who passed away by the name of Brian Booth. And I happened to be at his, uh, it was a very wonderful man. He was a Christian um, and, and a great evangelist in his own right. Um, so I sang at his funeral. I sang uh, the crimmed version of Psalm 23, any good uh, if um, Anglicans will know that version. And I also sung the Lord's Prayer. I, I, there are many contemporary-ish songs that I sing as well uh, that are Christian. Um, but generally, I tend to sing a lot of the, the more traditional songs, although, of course, I'm a versatile musician and I'll sing anything. So uh, long story short, yes, I sing a lot of Christian songs. Uh, I do do secular concerts as well meaning i'll go there and i'll sing this is the moment you raise me up uh songs from cold play like everglow and uh, uh hello from adele you know i so i'm, I'm quite versatile but the, the one thing i probably don't do very well is rap but um i i i, I will sing if it's a christian event i'm not going to do the secular stuff of course i'm going to do the more christian -y things and there's a beautiful song called uh, give me jesus which was, I first heard it sung by a guy called Fernando Ortega, and it's a very moving piece, and it, it, it's an invitation for people to invite the God of creation into their hearts, and that's my favorite song that I sing. 
The English press gave you a nickname. They called you the Singing Seamer. And that was on the release of uh, your song, Our Zimbabwe. And I think you've just done a reworking of that. But that was all about the controversial times. Uh, Give us us a thought or two. What what was Our Zimbabwe about? What was so powerful about it? Our Zimbabwe was a patriotic call to all Zimbabweans, irrespective of their colour, their creed, their background, to join together uh, with one voice and say, this is our Zimbabwe, this is our country, very much in the vein of I still call Australia home. And it was at a time when Mugabe was allowing people to invade farms, and the language at the time was very divisive, very polarising. And we felt as Christians, myself and my fellow co-writers, Uh, that we wanted to speak into that situation with a positive voice calling people to work together rather than uh, being divisive or divide dead. So that's the story of our Zimbabwe. I reworked it in 2011. I think most of these songs you can sort of hear on Spotify and uh, YouTube music, etc. But uh, long story short, it was a call for people to be united. And I think it was lost on a lot of people at the time. Um, but uh, many years later, I still get Zimbabweans saying, oh, that song touches me. Because, of course, once the politics is stripped away, people see through what the song really was trying to do and achieve, which is get people to be proud of their nation and Im- you know, embrace all the good values and ideals of Zimbabwe. Henry, where would you see yourself into the near future? Have you got some connections uh, with uh, Cricket Australia? And uh, I know you've had aspirations to do some cricket commentary. Have, uh, have you been invited to be a guest commentator? Uh, what's, uh, what's your aspiration moving forward from this point? Well, cricket commentary is something I may get into. Uh, I've got a philosophy in life. I never go where I'm not invited. And I never stay where I'm not wanted. So, uh, of course, I'm not going to. I don't have an agent who's pushing for me to be a, a commentator. But look, if the door opened, I would certainly consider it. Um, as far as the immediate future, I'm getting more and more into music. Uh, I'm going to be producing new albums, new music in the coming uh, uh, years or months, anyway, uh, in the near future. The main project at the moment is I'm finishing my audiobook. Um, so, I wrote a book in 2010 called Blood, Sweat and Treason, which was released in the UK as a print version, a hard copy and a paperback. And I've reworked it. I've um, basically recorded it as a narration. Uh, it's about 17 hours. And I think the, the printed version was about a 10-hour read. So I've got about, you know, uh, I've made it about twice as long as, as it was. I've filled in a lot of details. Um, the book is more palatable for believers. I've, I was allowed to put a bit more Christian content than the print version because I'm in control of this book rather than the publishers. And so, long story short, that should be out in about a month or two. Uh, Certainly by the end of July, I'm hoping it will be available on all major audiobook platforms. Uh, And in addition, I'm obviously available, as you mentioned, to share Christ um, wherever I'm invited. I, I love to work with churches. I love to work with universities. As you mentioned, I do go to prisons when the door is opened. But uh, ultimately, I, I, I'm just so aware at the age of 46 that my time is finite. And the most important thing uh, that I can share about my life isn't how many wickets I took being on The Voice or any of that stuff, but the fact that there is a loving God who wants people and he invites people into a personal love relationship with himself. And that's the most important decision people can make. More important than the mortgage, who you'll marry, 
um, where you will live, the question of where you will spend eternity, I think, is the most important question human beings can grapple with. And if I can uh, be a catalyst for people to consider that in their own lives, then, then you know, I, I would love to do more and more of it. So uh, that's how the next few years looks like. At the moment, I'm a stay-at-home dad. I'm married to my wife, Tara. We've got two wonderful daughters. I'm trying to be a dad and juggle all of this stuff at the same time. But um, watch this space. There's uh, lots happening on this front. Watch this space. And for listeners uh, to get a hold of uh, that autobiography, Blood, Sweat and Treason, and uh, soon to be available as an audio book in the next month or two, uh, no doubt that'll be available on all uh, online booksellers. Uh, but certainly lots of people love to get a hold of an audio book. Uh, some just want to read the print version, but the audio books are so, so popular. And uh, for connecting with you, you mentioned a little earlier on, uh, Henry, uh, people can follow you on Facebook or on Twitter and they can connect with you and you're available for speaking engagements as an evangelist, someone to be a speaker at a conference or at a church or mm. even men's groups. Um, you've also got a website, henryolonga.net. Is that also a place where people can connect? Sure. I mean, the, the, the easiest thing is to, to is to email me, to be totally honest. If you just want to get in touch with me, <laughs> uh, email is probably the easiest. I'm very slow on replying, but my email address is manager at henryolonga.net. So manager at my full name dot net. Um, and uh, hopefully I'll get back to you. Um, but uh, that's the best way. It's the most direct way. If you don't like social media, I know not everyone loves social media, but if you're wanting to get a direct line, uh, that's probably it. Well, you have an amazing story to tell and uh, absolutely uh, privileged and humbled uh, to have had you as a guest on the program once again, just sharing the insights around your story. Uh, for listeners connecting, uh, the book is called Blood, Sweat and Treason, the audio book coming out in the next month or two. You can email Henry. And uh, while there's a, uh, uh, there's, uh, there's a little bit of a condition, it might not be as quick, but... He'll respond to your email, manager at henryolonga.net. Henry, just wonderful getting your insights. I want to thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your history and uh, your insights into world cricket and controversies. Uh, thanks so much for sharing those things with us today on 2020. Thank you very much, Neil. And uh, once again, keep doing the good work you guys are doing and thanks for having me. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.